0: All right, go ahead, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you've been with us uh, for a while now, you know that we are going verse by verse through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And we are... uh in our last, uh, our, our last passage before we take a, a few week break and head into a, a couple of Advent passages. So then we'll pick up in January right where we're leaving off today. So we're uh, working our way through 1 Corinthians. And if you recall, he's been uh, talking about in chapter 7, marriage, divorce, and singleness. Now we've had some very interesting uh, sermons over the last three to four weeks. Interesting in the sense that they've challenged a number of idols that the modern Western church has held on to. And what we're trying to do in this entire sermon series is detach ourselves from our Americanism, detach ourselves from the things that we think are true of what Scripture ought to say, and see what does Scripture really say about all these various issues that we face on a day-to-day basis. 1 Corinthians, one of the best books in the Bible to help us do that. Now, few ideas are as elusive to the modern Christian as the issue of contentment, contentment. Contentment is one of those things that all of us uh, have a sense of what the word means. All of us have an idea that we want to be content. We want contentment in our life. But when it comes to actually practicing contentment, at least biblical contentment, very few of us ever achieve this in any real measure, any real degree. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the culture we're living in right now as Christians, right, this, this called out group of people, faithfully following Jesus Christ, but planted in the midst of an entire city of Chicago, The city of Chicago, in all of its ways, are built on developing a sense of discontentment in us. That's actually how the city works. That's how businesses work. That's how marketing works. The entire idea is to give you as much discontentment in your life as you possibly can so that you can go out and keep society going by purchasing more goods and more products and furthering the city along. The city is built on developing discontentment in you, but the the Bible calls the Christian to this... This deep-seated, otherworldly contentment. One of the best pictures of this discontentment is probably the weekend we're having right now. We just got done celebrating Thanksgiving. I posted a blog piece this week where I quoted Abraham Lincoln when he founded the actual annual holiday of Thanksgiving. It was shortly after he became a follower of Jesus Christ, after he was walking across the battlefield of Gettysburg. He finally became a Christian, seeing where 50,000 people had just died, gave his life to the Lord, and then he announced Thanksgiving as a holiday, a national day of repentance and thanking God for his mercies in the midst of ongoing national sin. Incredible holiday. But what do Americans do with this? We, we sandwich it between a bunch of opportunities to spend as much money as possible, right? This is what we do with Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, what was designed to be an opportunity to say thank you to God for all the mercies, even in the midst of a civil war. What we've done now is we've covered it with Black Friday, with Cyber Monday, and, and, and it just goes on. And, and, and what have we done? We've turned what was something about resting in the, in the providence of God into how can we be more discontent And how can we accumulate more and more? There's almost no better image of it than this last week we've just come through. All the marketing aimed at developing a sense of discontentment. And the reality is that if we're not careful, what happens with us is we head into a season like Advent. And we are just as discontent and have all the exact same heart issues going on as the pagan down the street. As the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ down the street. And we drag all that discontentment with us into the church. We go through Advent, and we think, oh, we're going to have something profound happen to us this December. It's going to be different. But then December comes and goes. Nothing changes. It's the same as it's always been. And we come into January wondering, why weren't we deeper? Why did not we catch something new? Perhaps it's because we didn't understand this idea of contentment. Let me pause this here and just ask you this. What's causing discontentment in your life right now? Get past the goods and the products that are being sold to you. Let's get real for a second. When you think about the longings and the circumstances that you're navigating in your life right now, are there circumstances that are driving a sense of discontentment? A sense of if only I could, if I, if I could fix these circumstances around me, then, then I'd be able to rest fully. Then I'd be able to just be with Christ. Then I'd be able to settle into some of those other rhythms I need to take care of in life. All of that is measured in the word discontentment. What's causing you? Discontentment right now. Perhaps it's something with your family. Perhaps it's something with your job. Perhaps it's something with something to do with the chapter we just came through on marriage, divorce, and singleness, and your status right now. Perhaps it has to do with friends and what you're seeing them go through. Perhaps your discontentment's actually bigger than that. Maybe you've You've kind of seen society as a whole, and you're seeing the, the issues that we're dealing with, and you're feeling the anger in the air, the atmosphere, kind of this, this general spirit of anger and frustration over the fact that things aren't the way they ought to be, and, and you're just generally discontent. What's causing you discontentment right now? Well, contentment's the theme of our passage today. And, uh, and what I'm going to try to show you is that Paul anchors the Christian contentment in something that, um, that is not possible outside of the Christian life. Contentment is a theme that Christian and non-Christian alike probably aspire to. I bet you could find a number of non-Christian blogs and websites that would tell you contentment's a good thing. But biblical contentment, what, what, what the Bible calls you to, is something that only the Christian can grasp. It's not available to anybody else. You have to go through the cross to get the kind of contentment that Christ offers. But if you can get it, if you can find it, if you can navigate towards it, it sets your life up an entirely different posture. And actually, what I'm gonna show you today is that the ability to love God and love your neighbor the way Christ calls you to is rooted in finding contentment. You wanna be the kind of Christian who's salt and light of the earth? You want to be the kind of Christian that truly loves your neighbor, you're going to have to solve the riddle of discontentment in your life. And I think our passage leans us towards that today. Here's Paul's main idea in our passage, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. As Christians, we must ground contentment in our calling, not in our circumstances. Hear that again. We must ground contentment in our calling and not in our circumstances. Let me read the whole passage to us, then we'll pick it apart. Starting in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. You're going to find that word called come up at least seven times in this passage, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, what he's gonna do in this passage is he's gonna give us one rule and then two examples to explain the rule to us. Here's the rule: the rule is that we're to lead the life that God has assigned. Verse 17. Lead the life that God has assigned to us. Let me read it to you again. Verse 17 only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now, what does this language mean? Lead the life. That language has this idea of walking in all of life. Lead the life. It's looking at every aspect of your life. It's looking at your career. It's looking at your family. It's looking at the house you have. It's looking at all the aspects that make you, you all the parts of your story that make you you, all the influences that have been in your life that have shaped you as you are today, as you sit in this room right now. He's looking and he's saying, look, lead the life that God has assigned you in all those aspects, everywhere. There's a consistency to the Christian life it's not lead a particular life on Sunday and then go back out into your world, into your job, and be somebody else when you go there. There's this holistic transformation of the follower of Christ that your faith follows you everywhere you go. You lead the life which he has, called, which he has, called, which he has assigned to you and to which God has called him. Now, this language of being assigned a particular life, we've got to back up and evaluate that for a second. What does being assigned mean? It means that somebody else dictated your circumstances. Your life was assigned to you. Now, this, this really rubs up against the Western world a lot. Because in the Western world, we like our individualism. We like being the, the chief engineer of our own destiny. We want to we grab our destiny by by the reins, and we want to drive our life, we want to drive our savings, we want to drive everything that we do as best as we can towards the vision we have for our life. But what this one verse says is that you are not the commander of your life. There is a commander of your life who has assigned you the life that you have, all of it, even the parts you're discontent with. And if the Christian can recognize the sovereignty of God in their life, it changes the entire conversation about contentment, doesn't it? Because the sovereignty of God is one of the the kind of fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. When we say sovereignty, we mean that God is not uh, underneath our wills. It's not... We have a vision we're going, and then we can call God to kind of steer us towards that vision where we have set. What sovereignty means is that God is fully in control of all things. As R.C. Sproul used to say, there's not one maverick molecule in the entire universe. Not one maverick molecule in the entire universe. It's all under his decree and all underneath his will. And when he gets a hold of a follower of Christ, he unlocks the heart and the mind to be content underneath his sovereignty, See, before you were a follower of Christ, we weren't content underneath his sovereignty, were we? Before you were a follower of Christ, you looked at someone say that God's in control of all circumstances, and you said, I don't like that. I want to be in control of all circumstances. I don't trust him. I trust me more than I trust him. But part of being a follower of Christ is saying, actually, I don't trust me. I've spent long enough looking inside my own heart to know that this this is not a good lead foot. But I'm gonna willingly place myself underneath his good leadership and see how he leads my life through whatever comes my way. This has everything to do with God's sovereignty. In which you were called, that language, it comes up seven, if not eight times, I think, in this passage, to be called to something. Now, we oftentimes speak of callings when we talk about vocational ministry. And so, my role as a preacher, as a pastor, I have a calling into this ministry where the Lord kind of called me from my corporate job into what I'm doing right now. But every single follower of Christ actually has a calling on their life, according to this passage. Isn't that interesting? And this is really important. When we use the language of calling to only speak about a pastor or those who are in ministry, we rob the body of what your life counts for. Every single follower of Christ has a calling on your life to do particular work that God has assigned you in particular relationships, in particular networks, with particular resources, with particular children, with particular circumstances around you. And as a follower of Christ, what every one of us does, preacher and banker and teacher and and a housemaker alike, all of us together, we come into this place and we say, God, what have you called me to? I'm underneath your sovereignty, your love, you've assigned me something, and then we open our hearts to God and we say, God, reveal your calling on my life. Let me make good with what you've given me. We've been called. Now, that's the rule. The rule is, lead the life that you've been called to. Not seek out a better life, quote, better, what you believe to be better, not try your best to change your circumstances so you can be in a better position to then bless someone. No, no, no. Lead the life God has called you. That's the rule. Now he gives two examples, and these are interesting examples, to say the least. The first example is circumcision, verses 18 to 20. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God each one should remain in the condition in which he was called now the the scandalous significance of circumcision falls a little bit on deaf ears in 21st century because it doesn't quite have the same meaning it would have meant to the first century church which was comprised of a lot of Jewish people and a lot of gentiles coming to the very coming together for the very first time in this new community circumcision was the mark of the Jews in the old testament Gentiles weren't circumcised in that day. Majority, usually, Gentiles were not circumcised. Circumcision was a mark given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, all the way back in the book of Genesis, when God started this whole thing off. He, he carved out a people for himself to be his own possession, to be a nation set on a hill. And he said, here's the mark. I want you to take every male among you, eight days old when he's born, and circumcise them. And that circumcision, that physical marking was to be a sign that they had been cut out from the nations to be their own people. And anybody who was circumcised was a part of that holy people of God. Well, now we come into the New Testament church where the wall of division between Jew and Gentile has been broken down and there's this new community of the Jews who have the mark of circumcision and the Gentiles who don't have the mark of circumcision. And the word uncircumcision for Jews in those days was a bit of a slanderous term. Remember David when he fought Goliath? The famous line that David said when he fought Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, right, who dares that he should defy the armies of the living God? It was a slanderous term for Jews to look out at non-Jews and they'd say they're uncircumcised. They don't have the marks of the holy calling on them. Now, to make matters worse, in first century, nudity was a lot more common, than it is today. There were bathhouses, there were sports arenas where everything was done, gymnastics events that were all done in the nude. So basically, (laughs) I hate to say this bluntly, but when you came together in a a church, you knew, okay? Everybody knew. There, There was no hiding this. All the guys would have seen each other and they would have known who was circumcised and not circumcised. Now that's actually important context because this is saying something very clear to the community, And it's saying something about how we divide ourselves and how we find discontentment. He says to those who are circumcised, don't seek uncircumcision. Now, this is terrible, but there was actually a a thing that Jewish men used to do. We read about this in the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees that Jews who were living in Jerusalem at the time were discontent and believed that Gentiles had it made and they didn't like being Jews. And so they went through this painful operation in those days called epispasm where they essentially uncircumcised themselves. I'll let you look up how they did that on your own time. <clears throat> okay, but what they tried to do was mutilate their bodies out of a sense of discontentment. Now why would a Jewish person in the first century church be concerned with mutilating to be so discontent with their circumstances that, that they would actually go through the painful process of epispasm in order to better fit in with their community what could cause that much discontentment in a human heart well the jews are looking in on this new community they've always been a minority They've, whatever city they've been in, they've been a minority, they're looking at, and they've always been living among these Gentiles in these cities, and now they're coming together, and, and they don't have that special calling on them anymore. They're not you know, you know that special thing that the Jews had is the, the holy ones marked off. and now they're looking and they're saying, "Oh, well, we're just kind of one of everybody else in this community, and, and the Gentiles kind of have it made. Maybe we should be more like them. And Paul looks into this and he says, look, you're being tempted to be discontent with the calling that's on your life. And so they're coveting other people's circumstances. Maybe, maybe here's how I'll get contentment. Maybe if I mutilate my body, then I'll be content. And then he talks to the circumcision. It's not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, funny enough, were doing the exact same thing on the other side, but for different motivation. (laughs) Everyone was discontent. They were all coming into a room, looking across the aisle, thinking they've got it made. Why would the Gentiles be content in that first century church? Well, the Gentiles are coming in, and they're saying, well, okay, we become Christians. And what does that mean? Well, where's the law? What's, what we, it's the Old Testament, and the Jews were the prized people. They were cut apart from God. They had all the prophets. They had all the promises. If I, if I could be a Jew if, and be in this church, then then I'd truly have the fullness of the promises. I could claim Father Abraham, I could could claim all the prophets of the Old Testament as my own. And so the Gentiles were coming into this new community looking at the Jews, saying, they got it made. And Paul's saying, you're being tempted to be discontent with the calling that's on your life, and you're coveting someone else's calling. Isn't this interesting? Everyone's coming into the church together, coming in, putting on their Sunday best, gathering together, taking the communion meal together, and Paul nails it. Everyone's looking across the aisle, coveting what everyone else has. And circumcision is the one that's right there. And and then he says this in verse 19 to 20. Let me make this clear. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. You want to measure yourself? You want want to understand who we are in light of each other? Here's what's important. This is the main command. Circumcision counts for nothing anymore, says Paul. It's not what marks you had under the old covenant. It's not who you were before Christ got a hold of you. It's not what your story was before Jesus got a hold of your life. It's what has Christ done in you. What is the fruit of the gospel working in your life? He says it's keeping the commands of God. He's going back to the Old Testament, and he's saying, this is what a transformed life looks like. If the gospel's gotten a hold of you, if the Holy Spirit's inside of you, you can obey God. And that's how we look at each other. That's how we call each other to new new life. That's the commonality we have with each other, following Jesus. I think it's interesting here that he actually speaks about the commandments of God. He's, He's going back to the Ten Commandments, specifically the moral code. The moral law that God assigned us that is still in play today. We are called to obey the Ten Commandments today. And particularly, talking about contentment, I think in this passage, he's going back to the Tenth Commandment. Who knows what the Tenth Commandment is? Don't covet. Don't covet. The Tenth Commandment is this fascinating commandment where, where he gets, God gets down to the heart and he says, I desire you to be so content with what I have called you to that you wouldn't even look at anything your neighbor has, any style of life he has, any possession he has, any amount of land he has, any vision he has for his life. Don't covet any of it. That's the 10th commandment. That's right after don't kill, right? Don't covet anything that your neighbor has. If you want to know what it means to keep the 10th commandment, it means to be so content with what God has assigned you that you would not even desire someone else's circumstances. The Westminster Confession, I like to quote the old confessions and creeds to to remind us of the story that we're a part of. It's a rich legacy, Christians walk in, thousands of years old. Talking about the 10th commandment, the Westminster Confession asks this. It says, what are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? Listen to how they answer it. The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with one's own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. I think that's what Paul's getting after here. In that day, circumcision was a a racial ethnic division. That's what it was. It was the Jews and the non-Jews. And the way you knew who was who was that mark. It separated the races and the the ethnicities from each other. And Paul says, don't let those divide you. Don't covet what either person has. One this way or one that way. You're a new person in Jesus Christ. That will not divide you. And there's no envying because to envy what someone else has is to break the 10th commandment. What's the second example he gives? Second example is bondservanthood. Now that's a translation in our ESV translations. Another way you can translate that is slavery slavery. His two examples are race and socioeconomic status. (laughs) You want to talk about um, issues that we're still dealing with today in terms of contentment and discontentment? Race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status dividing the church. Paul goes right there and he uses them as examples to lay down his principle. And what's the principle? Be content with what God's assigned you. Understand your calling in life. Paul now makes the exact same point with slavery. Now, a little bit, a little bit of background on slavery. When I use the word slavery, i got to make sure, you know, we talk about this. This word comes up a lot in the Bible. A little bit of background to help us understand the context, just like we did with circumcision, right? Slavery, by the time we get to first century, was A worldwide practice. In fact, it was a worldwide practice up until just a few hundred years ago when Christians took over politics and got things done and ended slavery around the globe. You can go backwards and look to guys like William Wilberforce and John Newton and some of the greats who began in England and then in this country left it going for many more years after that and ended up going to a war over it. But slavery was a global phenomenon that took place. It was an institution that was as normal around the globe in every nation as something like our modern-day prison system. Okay? That's a good example. Many of us could not imagine a society existing. Our 21st century mind, you can't imagine a society existing without prisons. You'd say, well, I, I don't get it. What would you do? How would it work? That's the mindset of what a first-century person world would have looked like. They couldn't have imagined a society without slavery taking place. It's just It was the institution. That's how it worked. But slavery looked very different than what we know of as American slavery. First of all, it wasn't race-based. Most of the time. It wasn't what it ended up becoming in American slavery. But second of all, it usually didn't last for a lifetime. It usually was not generational. You could usually earn your freedom. Many people opted into slavery because it was a bit of a welfare system. If you were at risk of losing your home, maybe you are going to be homeless with your family, you could sell yourself into bond servanthood into a wealthy family. And you could be their bond servants and take care of their needs, clean their home, take care of their properties, work for them for a number of years, and then they'd pay you and then they'd let you go. But you'd have a contractual slave agreement. Now, that doesn't mean that it was light. That doesn't mean that it wasn't bad. It was truly a property thing. You were considered property of the person who owned you. And there were a lot of abuses that took place, which is why this, as an example, is To me, one of the most scandalous ideas that will push on our understanding of what providence and the sovereignty of God has to say. Paul goes into the slave system, and he says, verse 21 to 23, were you a bondservant when called? That means when Jesus got a hold of you and made you a follower of Christ. Do not be concerned about it. But then he gives a little anecdote. He says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Slavery was essentially a socioeconomic status in those days. Slaves had a particular role of what they could do, what they couldn't do, what they could buy, what they couldn't buy, where they could go, where they couldn't go, where they had to be at what times. And now if you can imagine this first century church coming together, this would have been a very interesting predicament because outside there were people you talked to and didn't talk to. But now you come in and you're brothers in Christ. And how does, a, how does a church do this? How do we operate? How do, how do we build relationships that cross socioeconomic barriers? Can I tell you, as a pastor of a church in Chicago, race is actually far easier to overcome in terms of division that keeps the church apart than socioeconomic barriers. That's my—I that, that, don't know if I can support that by data. That's by my anecdotal perception of being a pastor in the city for nine years— Socioeconomic barriers oftentimes are greater barriers and divisions to true biblical relationship taking place, even than race ends up being. And, and Paul is getting at that here in this passage, and he's calling them to life together, and he's pushing on their categories of freedom. And he says to both of them, Understand your calling. And the same principle applies Were you a slave? Know that God's sovereign over your life. And he called you while you were in that place. But he gives an anecdote here. He says, look, if you can get your freedom, you're not stuck there. The Christian life is not one where you're frozen in a moment of time and you never move beyond the moment Jesus got a hold of you. This passage does not say God got a hold of you. Whatever your circumstances were, they're never going to change. You're stuck. That's That's not the idea here. Because he says right there, if you can get your freedom, go ahead, get it. But the bigger point is this. Don't be consumed with getting your freedom. Don't be consumed with that as your primary identity and mode of life. There's a higher identity you have. He's saying to the person who's a bondservant in the first century church. That higher identity is being underneath the good sovereign hand of God and finding contentment in what he's called you to. Now all week, this has pushed up against my sense of what the Bible ought to say. Because I think that's one circumstance that I might say, Feels like you might make an exception on that one, Paul, right? Feels like our understanding of contentment might be being stretched to its utter limits in this illustration. And Paul certainly does recognize that by giving us the verse that says, if you can get your freedom, go ahead and get it. Why? What's his verse there? Because you're already a freed man in Christ. He says, if you were called in slavery, understand this, your new reality, despite your circumstances that you find yourself in, you have been called to a reality that is deeper and more profound than what your life is and what you're seeing on the outside and all of your circumstances. And that reality is that Jesus has changed everything about you and you're free in Christ. Galatians, Galatians says, I, for freedom I've been set free. I've been released from the shackles of sin. The deeper slavery that you had, bond servant in the first century was not the slavery you have to your master it was actually the slavery you had to sin you were in you were bound by it you couldn't have gotten out if you possibly tried but christ has set you free and that is your greatest reality and now underneath the good hand of god find contentment in trusting that he is leading your life in a good direction if he could break you from that slavery can't you trust him that he knows what he's doing in this moment and then to equalize the playing field so that the freedman isn't over here saying, yeah, just get on with it, slave. Right? He looks over here and he says to the freedman, you, you're a slave in Christ. Do you see what he's doing here? He's equalizing the relationship status between every single person. Whatever you were before you met Jesus, you all came to Christ in the exact same way. On your knees before a holy God. That's the one commonality we all had. Every single person in this room has a different story, different scars that you have from your life, different parents you had, different circumstances, different races that you come from that all have their own cultural stories and narratives that are important, that formed you, that formed your ideas and and vision for the world. And then Jesus took all these people from different backgrounds, different stories, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different countries in this place and brought us to one place on our knees before a holy God. And when he brought you to your knees, he equalized everybody. He said, whatever you measured and valued yourself before, whatever would have caused discontentment, to look across the aisle and say, if only I had that, if only I were her, if only I had that, That would then, then my life could get going. He says, no, 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 you're all underneath the sovereign hand of God because on your knees you recognize that we were all bound by sin, And the only way any of us have been set free, any of us could possibly be loved by a holy God, is for one man, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross and shed his blood so that all of our sin could be forgiven. Whether you're rich or poor, black or white, whatever country you come from, Everyone comes underneath the blood of Christ into his church. One man paying the debt, the toll for our sin. And then we're united in Christ. This is actually one of the great themes of Christian history, is that there's a unity and a brotherhood and a sisterhood of the saints. That wherever you go across this globe, right now, you you could go to Thailand right now. You could go to Senegal right now. You, You know what? You could go to where the World Cup is, where the nations are being gathered right now. And you could go into the area where they're all lounging around the cafeteria, if that's what it is. And you could get Christians from every single different country. And despite all those differences, you'd have a higher reality in common with each other. You'd have a brotherhood in Christ. And that's your deeper reality. That bonds you greater than anything you could ever find on this earth. And Paul has such a word for us because we're so prone to finding discontentment on these exact same issues. And he says, see the deeper truth and cling to it and live in light of a deeper community. Because what, is, what happens when you drag division like this into the church? You ruin your witness to the world. Don't you? You, you, you ruin it. Because the, tr- the world can't figure this out. The world can't figure out race. The world can't figure out socioeconomics. The world knows division really well. And when the church looks a lot like the world, our light, it's like you just put a a black light in it you you can't see anything but when the church lives in light of a deeper reality and there's a genuine brotherhood and sisterhood that takes place and I, I mean really you heard me say when we did the meet and greet earlier we're a family and families know each other I mean it that's not just words I say families eat meals together families celebrate Christmases together families serve each other die for each other if needed When when that kind of life together takes place, from people from all different backgrounds, all different stories, all different scars, all different types of parents, then the city looks in and they say, What got a hold of you? Who are you? What what are you people? Because you solved something we couldn't solve. And I think this church has a chance to actually be that group. Because when I look around this room, we're a group of people from a lot of different places, with a lot of different stories, with a lot of different scars. The gospel brings all of us together and it forms a communal sense of contentment. Now, I wanna work this theme of contentment. I just got a few minutes left here, but I wanna work, this is so important. The Puritans, I have a, a pet love of the Puritans and what they were able to accomplish in terms of their love of Christ. But they had a lot to say on contentment. And there was a wonderful sermon that my staff and I read a while ago by a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. I sent it out to you as a church. It was a sermon titled, Uh, What was it called? I think it was called the, the precious or the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And I think at what was the high point of this sermon, Jeremiah Burroughs, he says, true biblical contentment requires two pieces. One, it requires a submitting to God's authority. But two, it requires a taking pleasure in God's sovereignty. Let me work both of those for just a moment. First, submitting to God's authority. If you want contentment in your life, I think what Paul is getting at is that you need to learn to submit to God's authority. This does not happen quickly. There is a natural inclination because of sin that takes place in the human heart that we reject God's sovereignty, even on the other side of following Christ. Now we have a new nature. We're following Jesus in a new way. But Paul shows us in Romans 7 that our old flesh still clings to us, and sometimes we get drawn into our old ways of thinking. And so what we need to do is renew ourselves every day by putting on Christ, putting on the things of the Spirit, especially when it comes to contentment. Contentment is first submitting ourselves to God. What's causing you discontentment right now? What are the circumstances? The first part of contentment is, is looking up to a holy God and saying this, you've called me into the circumstances in which I find myself in right now. Help me to place myself underneath your, your authority. I, I bow the knee. I'm, I, I'm not going to try to cajole my way out of this. I'm not going to try to try to manipulate my way through. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find my, my place just submitted knowing you're in control. That's a, daily, that's a hard prayer to pray if you find yourself discontent today. Burroughs puts it this way. Will you be above God? Is it not God's hand? And must your will be regarded more than God's? Oh, under, under, oh, thou soul, get under, keep under, keep low, keep under God's feet. You are under God's feet and keep under his feet. Keep under the authority of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the power that God has over you. Keep under, that is to submit. Then the soul can submit to God when it can send itself under the power and authority and sovereignty and dominion that God, the God of the Bible has over it. The first part of contentment, you want contentment, is learning to submit to God. But that's not it. He then turns. Because you can learn to begrudgingly submit to God as a Christian. You can learn how to just go through life and say, well, <laughs> I guess I just got to follow God. You know? This, I'd be miserable about it. But, but I'm submitting myself to God. He turns, he says, no, no, no. There is an abounding joy that you will find in your circumstances as a follower of Christ. And contentment is not just submission, but it's submission in joy to what God has called you to, no matter the circumstances. Oh, we got some work to do here, church. Finding joy in the midst of your circumstances, the key to your, the key to your contentment. Finding joy means whatever God puts in front of you, you're going to find and feel and taste and see the sovereign hand of God all over it. And because God's sovereign hand is all over it, you're going to look up and because he's your highest pleasure in life, now as a follower of Jesus, you're going to find your greatest joy simply in knowing he's marching you through whatever you're going through in life, no matter how hard it is. No matter how difficult the circumstances are, no matter how much you wish you could change them, you're gonna find a joy. Because here, look, when you look at the things that cause you discontent and the things you might go after in life, they're like little lights tempting you. If you could just have this, if you could just have this. And then finding Jesus is like a supernova in your life. And then when we, when we get discontent, it's like we're taking our eyes off the supernova and settling for an eight-watt eight light bulb over here in the corner. If only I could just have this. Meanwhile, a supernova is blinding us above us, saying, just look, find yourself under here. And if you know the goodness of the supernova of who Christ is and what he's called you to, you can look at any circumstance in life, no matter how difficult it is. And we got some difficult ones in this room. And you can say, my greatest pleasure is in submitting myself to your will because any other place I don't trust. Burroughs says it this way. Perhaps some of you may say as David, it is good that I was afflicted. Not good when you see the good fruit that it has wrought, but when you are afflicted, to say it's good that I'm afflicted. Whatever the affliction be, yet through the mercy of God, my condition is a good condition. It is the top indeed. And the height of this art of contentment to come to this pitch to be able to say, well, my condition and afflictions are this and this and it's very grievous and sore, yet I am through God's mercy in a good condition and the hand of God is good upon me, notwithstanding. See, this is the heart of a Christian. This is the heart of contentment. Let me, let me close by, by suggesting something. We're heading into Advent We've got a whole month ahead of us. And uh, the whole idea I just got after at the beginning of this, talking about Black Friday and Thanksgiving being this kind of silly juxtaposition. Well, if ever there was a juxtaposition, it's Advent being the great marketing scheme of the last 25 years. Advent will do one thing to you. It will make you discontent if you let it. But what if we do something different this year? Can I suggest that maybe as a community, that God is calling us and inviting us by giving us this passage to start Advent off. He's calling us to something new. And it can't be bought. It can't be cajoled. The only way to figure this out together as a community is to be the real deal and to get together on our knees in prayer. And to ask the Lord to root out from us the discontentment that we have. And to do that in community, because here's the thing, when you know each other as well as some of you know each other and the depth of friendship that you have in this church, you know what your friends are discontent with, don't you? You can, you can kind of nudge each other and say, I know, you've been sharing that discontentment with me for a while. And what if Advent becomes a sweet opportunity to slow down, disconnect, and truly reset a rhythm? What if Advent 2022 is a chance to not do it the way we've done it in the past, What if this is that great moment to say, you know, I'm tired of having year in, year out go the same way it always has and not truly growing in my faith, not truly being a better dad, not truly being a better wife, not truly being a better daughter of the king, not truly learning what it means to to serve my neighbor in a way that stretches me sacrificially. I'm tired of that. And I want to learn contentment. Why? Because like the Puritans used to say, it's only when you learn contentment that you cease coveting what others have and you're set up to actually serve your neighbor. Contentment is a starting point for actually serving your neighbor. What was the principle Paul gave us this morning? He said this, the main principle, lead the life that God has assigned you. Whatever God has assigned you, whatever he's called you, he is good. You can trust him. Let's seek after that together. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We recognize that there's a lot of discontentment in this room. Myself, chief on that list. God, and we want something different. We, we, we don't want to be stuck in that. God, we want the depth of Christ resurrected, who doesn't leave us the same day in, day out. We want the depth of Christ resurrected, who has something new for us, who's pushing us into deeper places of community with him. God, I pray that for us this year. In Christ's holy name.